as you're uh, turning with me, Matthew chapter 19 of the New Testament particularly speaks about some that were possessed of evil spirits, demonic forces, and some may scoff at that, or others may say, yeah, that was kind of a New Testament problem, not a, not a problem today. I would say it still happens today. I was literally singing that song thinking, boy, if anybody has a demonic force in them that's in our audience today, they're probably really uncomfortable right now as Jesus is being declared Lord because that evil spirit in them knows it's the truth but doesn't like to acknowledge it and sure wants to keep them from acknowledging it. Uh, but if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you like Jesus being declared Lord because that's what the Holy Spirit loves to do is magnify Christ. Matthew 19 uh, we've typically been kicking off from chapter 5. As you see from your handout, this is part 3 of a message on what Jesus teaches us about divorce springing from the Sermon on the Mount, verse 31 and 32. Uh, I'm going to need about not counting the reading in a moment. I'll probably need a good 10 or 12 minutes of intro, and then we'll finish out, thankfully, today. Uh, nobody is more thankful that this portion of, of our lesson is going to end today than me. I'll be glad uh, next week when we can move on uh, back to chapter 5, I think verse 33, Lord willing. Uh, I want to read the text. Uh, we'll start there. We actually went into this text last week, and then we'll kind of give our introduction again as well as a bit of a review uh, to bring up, up to speed where we're at. Okay, everybody got their Bible? You're going to want to have a Bible open. Maybe it's on your phone or a tablet. Uh, if that is the case, would you help us out and make sure that it's on silent? If your phone's on silent, that'll really help. Um, a lot going on in today's message. All right, Matthew 19. Read this last week. We're going through verses 1 through 12. Here we go. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. So he's up north in Galilee. And he entered the region of Judea. So that's down south. It goes Galilee, Samaria, Judea. So Jesus is on his way to the cross. That's the little context. And he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So if you were looking this way at a map, there's the Jordan River. So we have Judea. He's actually down in the Judean section, but on this side, apparently just a little over the Jordan River, just east of it. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Large crowds, lots of healings. In the middle of that, verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. So they're going to ask a question, but it's pretty clear they don't really want to learn anything. They don't want a lesson. Don't want a lecture. They really want a yes or no answer to this question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? They want to know, is it lawful? It's not like our constitution here in the United States, like speed limits. In the law of God, particularly the first five books of the Bible, they want to know Jesus' take. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Really a two-part question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? And then really entailed in that. For any cause, any old cause, just any cause. There was a large group of the population believed you could get divorced for any cause. And they kind of used Deuteronomy 24 to, to get that view. He answered. It's a strange answer Jesus gives to these Pharisees. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I know you guys hear what I'm about to say a lot. 
But notice it says he made them male and female. He didn't make three males and three females and say, y'all populate the earth amongst yourselves. He didn't do it that way. He also did not make a male and eight females. Y'all populate the planet. That's not what happened. He made them male, and we know that out of it, so God created Adam, and Eve was already created in him because out of Adam's side, God made Eve. Notice, out of his side, not lesser than, not greater than, an equal person, different roles. I think that may end up being talked about a little bit in the Sunday schools, but equal. This is God's decision. He's the one who did this. Verse 5, Jesus says, and said, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother. What a great relationship. We love our parents. They love us. But something outranks parent-child relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh-oh. This is the top, humanly speaking. This is the greatest relationship. And then the two, the Old Testament says, the two shall become one flesh. Have you Pharisees not read that? Where do you stand? Can a man get divorced for any cause? Divorce his wife? Have you not read Genesis now Jesus comments and then commands in verse 6 here's his commentary so they are no longer two but one flesh have you factored that in they're not two anymore they're one and then here's his command what therefore God has joined together let not man separate that's my answer to your question probably not the answer they were wanting it wasn't a nice clean yes or no and so now they're confused, but, uh-oh, he may have walked right into a different trap. We've got him now. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? <laughs> why did Moses command us to divorce our wives? And be sure when you do, give them a certificate of divorce. If you're going to abandon them, at least release them with a certificate of divorce. Why did Moses command that? Verse 8, he said to them, mm, no. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, a second time, Jesus keeps wanting to talk about the beginning. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now here comes Christ's kind of summary statement. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. There's two separate things happens there in verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife, there's failure number one, didn't keep the covenant. And then failure number two, and marries another, commits adultery. There is this one exception, except for sexual immorality. Verse 10, the book of Mark tells us this happens in a house. So this is after the fact. This is not the Pharisees. The disciples said to him, to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Lord, if what you just said, I hope you realize what it sounded like, because if it's what you just said, then it's better not to get married. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, one group, they can't get married physically, they were born a certain way, 
couldn't fulfill anything in marriage physically. They don't get married. And, second group, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. We know that typically if kings had harems of women that were their concubines, if men worked around the harem of women, usually they would castrate them to ensure that they don't mess with the king's women. So Jesus acknowledged group number one is born a certain way. Group number two, they are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs, third group, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. One man I know took that literally and actually had himself castrated. I think this is talking about a vow. They're going to be single for the cause of Christ. Jesus says there's a group who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And then he summarizes, let the one who's able to receive this Receive it, what you guys just said. That's a big passage. All right, here we go. A couple of disclaimers as I've done each week. I hope you guys know every week when we preach up here, I know I'm going to give an account to God. This is not something, this book is not something to be handled lightly, but I'm especially aware today that I'm talking about something that's very, very emotional. I mean, it occurred to me again this morning that the single most painful thing in some of your lives was that your parents divorced. That's the number one, and here I am talking about it. Others of you, you lived through that as a child, and you say that was horrible to go through, but it was even worse when I lived through it myself in my own marriage, and that is your single most painful thing, and here I am talking about it. And so I know this is very emotional, and on top of that, this subject is very controversial. I am admitting good men, great men disagree on this topic. And so where does that leave me? I am sure not up here in a place of judgment. I want you to remember that. Please remember that. I do not stand in a place of judgment. So where, what am I? I am just a fallible preacher who's going to give an account to God for what I say. Fallible means I am very capable of mistake. All right? I do not. I see through a glass darkly. Uh, we know in part and we prophesy in part. And that dynamic is the reason why I'm having to take three weeks instead of finishing last week. Because I'm telling you, I am open to correction in this. I finished last week with some opinion on some things that very well may be true. And today is going to offer another possibility. And that is why we're needing a third week. I will tell you in advance, I lean toward today's interpretation. Take that for what it's worth. Since this is part three, I need you to do this. So about a month ago, I set out on Matthew 5, 31 and 32. I did not know that this was going to be our outline. It's not in your handout. We didn't have room, but you're going to see on the screen what's now become kind of our master outline. I can now look back and say, oh, okay, this is the ground we've covered. So if you missed one of those weeks, go back to the website, graceviewchurch.com, and you should be able to go in there and look at that because if you've only heard two, you're hearing only two-thirds or one-third if you listen to one of the messages. Today is part three. Here's what we've covered. Roman numeral one, we talked about how marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. Very different. And we talked about how that marriage is a picture. So we went back to Genesis, and we went, went to Genesis 2, we went to... Malachi chapter 2, marriages are covenants, much stronger than a contract, much stronger than, hey, I promise, much stronger, much more permanent than that. 
And then we went to Ephesians chapter 5 and we found that our earthly marriages are supposed to be pictures of this mysterious union relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Aren't you thankful that when we mess up, Christ doesn't kick us away and take back our eternal life? No, it's called eternal life. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, Jesus says in John chapter 10. My salvation is not riding on how good I am or how tightly I cling to Christ. He's holding on to me. So it's a permanent thing. Our earthly relationships are supposed to mirror that. Number two, we saw, Roman number two, what God said about divorce through Moses. And we went back to Deuteronomy 24. We can't do it again today. Time won't allow. But we noted there, and I, I offer you to go again. I've read it multiple times. Deuteronomy 24 does not call for divorce. It certainly doesn't command divorce. I believe when I've read it, it doesn't even condone divorce. It merely describes and deals with a divorce situation and how it should not result in a remarriage in a certain unique situation. So it's not condoning. We talked all about that. Roman numeral three, this was still the first week. We talked about what God said about divorce through the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. And we noted two main points. Death separates the marriage bond. It breaks the marriage bond. The living person is free to get remarried to a believer if you're a Christian. Second thing we learn is if a Christian finds themselves married to an unbeliever, the Christian is not to get out of the marriage. They're to be faithful. But if an unbeliever wants out and departs and insists on it, then the believer allows that to happen, and the bond is then broken. There's big debate if that believer is free to now remarry a Christian, or are they just free from the marriage? And I'm not going to revisit that portion. Last week, we also looked at three things. We noted that divorce doesn't keep its promise. It doesn't deliver the, on its promise. It says, I'm going to fix most of your problems, and we find that it actually creates many new problems. And divorce is extremely painful. The fifth thing we did in the overall, second last week, was go back to Matthew chapter 19, this passage, and we noted that Jesus defends the permanence of marriage. We'll revisit this again in just a moment. It's the text that we're springing forth from today. And then the sixth thing. So as we looked at last week's passage, and we saw Christ is laying down a foundation of how marriage is permanent, he says something in verse number 9 that does allow for divorce in certain situations, and so we had to try to lay out what are possible interpretations for this, what he calls sexual immorality. What does that mean? And so we offered two. One interpretation says that this sexual immorality that is grounds for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness after marriage. And we could even say that some believe that an act of sexual unfaithfulness is grounds for divorce. And that's what Christ is pointing to when he says sexual immorality in verse number 9. So, hey, you're unfaithful one time, that's grounds for divorce. The difference between that and the second possible interpretation is that the word repeated the second possible interpretation is repeated sexual unfaithfulness after marriage. John MacArthur appears to hold this view, and we borrowed a quote, a little phrase from him, in which he says the reason that Jesus uses this phrase sexual immorality is because it uniquely is pointing to unrelenting, unrepentant sexual sins. This person keeps on doing it, or they keep returning. And the one who's the innocent one, Tries to forgive and tries to forgive and forgives and forgives, but this person just keeps on and on, and there's no real repentance that results. There's no real inward change that results in an outward change of, of life. And so, based on that, the person, the innocent one, is allowed to finally get free from such an evil marriage partner. 
That in light of, in the Old Testament, they would have been killed. And so in the New Testament, apparently the Roman government's not allowing death to take place. And so the Lord doesn't make them live under that. And that's a brief summary if you want to go back and listen to last week's message. So what's today? Today, you see that outline? Today, I'm going to spend the rest of my time looking at a third dot. So today is on one dot of a possible interpretation of Jesus' exception clause that is different from those first two. Of the first two, I would say that I would most agree with the second um, because of the covenant nature of the marriage, but today is going to offer a third. Let's very quickly review. I'm not going to reread all of this text again, but notice verse number three. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're wanting a yes or no answer. Here's what's happening. Jesus, where do you stand on the Deuteronomy debate about divorce? Christ's answer is, here's where I stand on Deuteronomy. Stop fixating on what Deuteronomy allows and start focusing more on what Genesis calls for, what God desires back in the book of Genesis. Not to borrow from another ministry, but what Christ is saying is, you need to get back to Genesis. You need to get back to Genesis. That's what God desires. Stop sinning. Your, your two became one, you're one in God's eyes. Don't separate, don't divorce. That's my answer. That doesn't satisfy them, and it seems that Jesus has now walked into another trap. So you're opposing Moses. Because Moses commanded us, then why in the world did Moses command us to divorce our wives and give them certificates of divorce? Christ corrects them and says, oh, time out. Moses did not command them. He allowed them to have a divorce. Now, here's what has to happen. Jeff, I did this this week. All right, Jeff. If we're going to be honest with the text, here's what we have to realize. You've been hammering away how Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 says he's the one who fulfills the gospel. So, Jeff, here's the situation. Your Lord, your master, the creator, your savior, in Matthew 19 sheds light and clarification on what was not really that clear in Deuteronomy 24, but he makes pretty clear now. He's the Lord. He's saying, oh, by the way, not clear there. I'm making it clear now. Moses did allow for divorce. So I need to factor that in. Okay. Moses allows for divorce. God, through Moses in the Old Testament setting, allows for divorce. So let's be honest with the text. That's pretty clear. But what's also clear is Jesus says, here's why he allowed for divorce, and here's when he allows for divorce. And so the reason he allowed for divorce, as we said last week, was, so he didn't command it, he allowed it because of the divorcing person's hard heart. And I added to that, that even when allowed so it may be allowed biblically, but even there, the divorcing person is the one that has the hard heart, and that's why the Lord is allowing it, but it doesn't mean that the Lord is calling for a divorce. It doesn't mean the Lord is commanding, He's allowing. And you say, Jeff, I'm not really sure. I don't know if this is saying the hard-hearted person is the divorcing people. Notice it says because of your hard heart, he allowed you to divorce your wives. It's not their hard heart in that they keep on in sexual sin. Your wife just refuses to get out of sexual sin. No, it's your hard heart. That's why Moses allowed it. All right. So today, I'm going to warn you. And let me say this. If someone is here visiting or is like you're 
first, second, third, fifth time. If today you walk out of here thinking, I am totally brain numb, I tried to track, and it just so technical, I felt like I was in Bible college, I don't think I'm going back to that church. Come back next week, we're going to be a lot less technical. I'm telling I'm warning you, today is going to be some work. It's going to be some work for me, it's going to be some work for you to track. I've been praying, and, and if you haven't been praying, if you haven't prayed, you need to pray right now, Lord, open my heart, help me to track. Lord, let me perceive truth, and Lord, just help me not to hear anything that's not true. Because it's going to be a little difficult at times. So Christ, here's Christ, our Lord, who fulfills, who's uniquely in a position to give clarity to the Old Testament, says, oh, it was allowed, but it was allowed because of your hard heart. It's not that I'm commanding or calling you to do it. I may allow you to do it, but here is when. Verse number 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, there's the win, and marries another, commits adultery. So I'm almost done with all the review. Here's the last part from last week. We know three things break the marriage covenant. Death breaks the marriage covenant. When an unbeliever departs from a believer, marriage covenant is broken. And we know from this text that according to Jesus, sexual immorality. Now, we can disagree on what sexual immorality means. We've offered two earlier. And now we're offering a third. So whatever sexual immorality means, that's the third thing that breaks the marriage bond. Now the question is, what does sexual immorality mean? Because we have now run out of Bible passages. There are no more things. So anything that we in our American mind, modern 2019 mind, think, well, surely this belongs on the list of reasons to divorce, you're not going to find it defended in the Bible. Death, unbeliever, leaving a believer, and something that has to do with sexual immorality. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness in quoting a higher percentage of my message from an author than any time I've been here in the three year plus years that I've been here. I've never quoted this much as I will today. And some of you, you may say, I don't like that guy that you're quoting. That is fine. I do like him. I don't agree with everything that he offers. But here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Deal with what he's offering. Deal with what is said. And you may say, oh, I don't like that. Or... I don't understand that. Or, man, that does seem to be what the text is saying. Please don't let who is saying, please don't let that it's a quote from John Piper turn you off. Please don't do that. Others of you, please don't say, it's John Piper. It's got to be true. Okay, John Piper is not an apostle. And I'm sure not an apostle. And so I'm going to offer the, why are you using such a high percentage in today? And again, if it's your first time here, you're probably thinking that guy just stands up there and reads other people's material. I don't normally do this. I'm doing it today because it best gets across this point today. I think I come across this probably a dozen or 14 years ago, and it's one of the two main areas of Scripture, the two biggest areas of Scripture that my theology has changed on. Here we go. Piper writes the following. He says, Jesus demands that husbands and wives be faithful to their marriages. And he doesn't assume this will be easy. Jesus demands that husbands and wives be faithful to their marriages. If I'm in a private counseling, I usually hammer away at the word to. I'll not do it today, but I will notice there's a difference in being faithful to your marriage and being faithful in your marriage. I'll be faithful while I'm in it. There's that, and then there's be faithful to it. To it is stronger. 
Later on, he writes the following, talking about Matthew 19. He says, just as in the beginning, the marriage covenant was not to be breakable, so now in the kingdom that he, Christ, was bringing on earth, this original attention is to be rediscovered. What he's saying is, Christ is calling for the bar to be raised. Jesus is raising the standard above what Moses allowed. I'm bringing some crisis uniquely. You've been taught as long as you don't murder. I'm telling you don't even hate, don't have anger. You've been taught as long as you don't commit the act of, of adultery. I'm calling you don't even have lust in your heart. You've been told that, that these are some grounds and as long as you do some paperwork, there are grounds for divorce. I'm calling you to a unique position that only sees this as divorce only allowed in these circumstances, sexual immorality. So he's trying to rediscover. There are four places in the New Testament Gospels where Jesus is going to speak on divorce and remarriage. This is the big one. There are three others. We've already looked at Matthew 5, but I want you to go back there. Go one time. I think we'll only look at this one time. I have a reason. Matthew 5, if you would. This is the text we've been springing from. We're, we're going through the book of Matthew here at Grace View. And we're in chapter 5. Be back chapter 5, Lord willing, next week. Look at Matthew 5. There's a reason I'm having you turn there. Verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone... Now, by the way, each one of these places... We're, going to, we're getting ready to look at a second place in Matthew. We're going to look at Mark 10. We're going to look at Luke 16. John does not even offer anything about divorce. John writes for a unique person, purpose. Those guys have already written about it. He doesn't need to write about it. What you're going to find is there's different nuances between Matthew's two times and Mark and Luke's writing of what Jesus says. Jeff, why is that? Are they contradictory? They're not contradictory. Each gospel writer does not have to write everything that Jesus said or did. They can all write about the same event and each one include a little bit. We'd have to put them all together to get the fuller picture of what Jesus did. And so we're going to find little nuances, a little different. Here's Matthew's version. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Two main things I want you to see there. I'm going to go quick. Two things. Here's first. Matthew writes that Jesus talks about it on two occasions. So that's, that, file that away. It's a little thing come up later. It's talked about two occasions. This is up north in Galilee as part of the Sermon on the Mount. The other, Matthew 19, is down in Judea. We know that this is probably two years apart, and we know that it's two separate locations. Jesus talks about it twice, and here's what Matthew writes about it. Second thing I need you to remember, only Matthew includes this exception clause that has to do with sexual immorality. Only Matthew. You're getting ready to see. Mark's not going to put it in there, and Luke's not going to put it in there. Hmm. Go to Mark chapter 10. So we saw the two places. We already looked at Matthew 19, and we saw Matthew 5 there. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 11. This is Mark's version of the same account that we're looking at in Matthew 19. Here's Mark's account of it. So we're trying to get our resources all on the table. Verse 11. And he said to them... Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So this sounds like, okay, wait, I see a couple things unique here to the others you've read, Jeff. Right. Whoever divorces his wife 
and marries another, commits adultery. Notice, I want you to remember this phrase. He commits adultery against her. He's committing it against her. They were married. This adultery is against her. And then the second thing we notice, verse 12, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So one of the things, not a major point. So it's not about men or women. If a man divorces, it's a sinful thing. If the woman does the divorcing, it's a sinful thing. It's a failure there. And so the remarriage, so that's what we kind of glean out of Mark. Luke is a little trickier. Go to Luke chapter 16. Still the words of Christ, Luke's version of it. The portion that he chooses to, the Holy Spirit leads him to write. Luke chapter 16. Matthew has two times, two separate occasions. Mark gives an account of the Matthew 19 version. Here comes Luke, verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. Now watch it. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Read it one more time. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And you may be hearing that and saying, what's different? Here's what's different. If you were to go home and read that ten times very carefully and look at the wording, here's what you would conclude. The man here is the guilty one. The man here is the one in the wrong. He's the one who's doing the divorcing. Everyone who divorces his wife. Second part of the verse says, he who marries a divorced woman. She's passive here. She's receiving the divorce. He's obviously the wrong one. He divorced. He started the whole thing. He divorced and went and married another. Here she is, got divorced. Here's the problem. We don't like this verse. You say, I don't have a problem with this verse. If you really get to understanding it in the way we're going to look at it in just a moment, you're probably going to be like me. That doesn't seem fair. She's innocent. Lord, she's innocent. He's the one who's at fault. And so the man is clearly wrong. What's strange to us is that this woman appears to be innocent, and yet Jesus has a problem with her second marriage, and she's not the one that started it. She's innocent. Why do you have a problem with her second marriage? Why are you calling her second marriage adultery? We get that his is called adultery. That's one thing. She had this done to her. What's she supposed to do? A couple of points to be made. So here's the first. We've got to deal with this word adultery. Hang with me. Getting technical, so get your minds ready. All right, here's this man who's married to this woman divorces her and goes and gets remarried to another, Jesus says that he is now committing adultery. Mark says he committed adultery against her. What's going on? Listen, words mean things. Piper writes the following. Evidently, the reason a second marriage is called adultery is because the first one, first marriage, is considered to still be valid. That's important. Why is this called adultery? I'm a, I'm a single man again. I'm back on the single scene. Apparently not. Because when you do that marriage, you're committing adultery against the first marriage. Again, words mean things. 
I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I just want your help. Help me out here. I want Bible words. Some of you grew up with the King James Bible, which is the word of God, just like I did. The ESV we're using here today uses the word sexual immorality. It's the word of God. Very comfortable in using these. Help me out here, guys. If we have a man and a woman that are married over here and a man and a woman that are married over here and this married man and this married woman over here, if they get together and have a sexual relationship, he's married, she's married, that's called what? Adultery. Very good. If you have a high school senior guy and a high school junior girl and they're dating and they're single and they cross lines that they shouldn't and they have sexual relationship, that's called fornication. Very good. If we have this man that is married to this woman, but he steps out of that and he has sexual relations with a single lady, that's called adultery. So what this tells us, to have adultery, you have to have at least one married, one married person, otherwise it's called fornication. The high school students, that's sin, that's the sin of fornication. When you bring a married person into it, you have now brought, whether it's married with married or married with single, whether it be her married, single guy, whatever's happening here, this is now adultery. Christ is saying this second marriage is called adultery against the first marriage. Why? Why is he doing that? I want to offer the following. Jesus calls remarriage after adultery. He calls remarriage after divorce. He calls it adultery. Why? Because the divorce did not dissolve the original union in God's eyes. Oh, no, 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 I, 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 got, my, I got my papers. We're, that's done. I've, I'm not with her anymore. God says, I don't care about your paper. No, I, I, got, I got paperwork. The papers got us married in the eyes of the state, and now, okay, in the eyes of the state. God says, a piece of paper is not what married you, and a piece of paper is not what unbinds you. I'm not acknowledging your divorce. That's why that's called adultery against your original union. God says, no, you're not back on the single scene. You're still married. I'm going to give you a moment to write that because we're going right into another quote. You said, Jeff, this... Is a unique, you said we're going to be uncomfortable with verse 18 in Luke. We probably are. If you were to read it over and over, I think you would probably see what Piper is about to tell us. You had that? Here we go. This is a hard saying. Verse 18 makes us uncomfortable. Man, this seems, we don't like it. If Jesus is saying what, and I get it, it does look like, he's really frowning on her, but it was done to her. Piper writes the following. He says, this is a hard saying. Please don't get caught up in the gender, by the way. We could very easily flip the pronouns and say a man. But in this case, it's a woman, so please don't get caught up in gender. Let's, I know a lot of that's going on in our country. Here's what he writes. The woman who is forsaken... Here she is. The woman who is forsaken by a man who leaves to marry another is called by Jesus to display the holiness of her marriage vows and the holiness of the nature of the marriage covenant. How is she supposed to display this? By not marrying another. But he did. And I get it. We don't like that. I'm with you. He started it. He's out there. He went. He divorced her. Now he's out there. 
He's already broken the covenant. Surely I'm free too. Piper's offering to us that it appears the Lord is saying, just because he did doesn't mean you are too. Jeff, what's what's she to do? Watch. If a man leaves her and divorces her, then what's she to do? Pray for his changed heart to come back. But once he remarries, what's she to do? Apparently what this text is calling us is wait for his death and not get remarried. If I could say it a little more bluntly, his adultery does not seem to free her up to commit adultery. And we're like, yeah, when's this series over? I'm like ready to move on to about how we're supposed to be honest. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I'm with you. Matthew, we're not going to turn there. Matthew 5, we've already read it. Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, 9. Of that, Piper writes the following. Because here, by the way, can I say this? Can we agree that what verse 18 seems to be hinting at, that's different than these two bullet points that we had last week? Do you see a difference? Well, hold on, Jeff. If he divorces and gets remarried, even if he left for a different reason other than sexual immorality... And maybe he dated this second wife and they were pure during their dating. Now that they're married, that's unrelenting, unrepentant. Surely she's released. I get you. This seems different than that. Seems like Christ is saying, yeah, I'm calling to a higher standard. Like, oh, man. Piper confesses. He says, because here's what we have to ask. Then what in the world is this exception clause? Doesn't sound like a lot of wiggle room. What's going on in Matthew 9, 19, 9? What's going on in Matthew 5, 32? What's this exception clause then? Great question. Piper writes, all my adult life I assumed that adultery and desertion were two legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage. Then after that later he writes, but there came a point when this assumption began to crumble. If you give him, like him or not, you've got to acknowledge one thing. The guy will deal with the text and he'll dig. And he's not going to pull punches on himself. He said, I had to change. He writes the following. By the way, he's going to give us six hints. Why did you change? Six hints. Number two, three, and four are really all the same hint, just different versions that it's found in Scripture. He writes the following. I was, hint number one. I was initially troubled that the absolute form of Jesus' denunciation of divorce and remarriage in Mark 10 and Luke 16 is not expressed in Matthew bothered him wait a minute and we need to ask ourselves this if we did not have the book of matthew and all we have is mark and luke y'all know that when we just read that then we're not having this conversation if we're following jesus there's no divorce if you divorce and get remarried you're committing adultery only matthew first thing that bothered him why does matthew include it and the other guys don't great question second hint lots of quotes coming here we go He says, quote, the second thing that began to disturb me was the question. Why does Matthew use the Greek word porneia? We're talking about what is this exception? What is this sexual immorality that is the grounds for divorce? He writes, why does Matthew use the Greek word porneia instead of the word, can I even remember this? Moicheia. Moicheia. I can't do it. I thought about doing my little how to pronounce Greek words and hitting it and letting iPhone put it up here. To the, I thought about it. Pull it up. How to pronounce that word. I can't do it. 
that the Jews do. It's something over my head. I've been saying it wrong all along. Here's his question. <laughs> why is only Matthew giving it, and why is he using this word that in the ESV has sexual immorality, and the King James says is fornication instead of the word adultery? He continues. I'm adding these two words. Especially since, back to his quote, sex, follow this, this is important, sexual immorality in marriage would naturally be adultery. Sexual immorality in marriage, we already have a word for that. It's called adultery. Why is Jesus using a different word? Great question. And then he says the word Matthew uses to express Jesus' meaning is one that usually means fornication. Follow this. It's a word that usually means fornication or sexual immorality without reference to marital unfaithfulness. This word, porneia, is not the same word, and it's not used typically to talk about adulterous situations. It's usually something that has, like before marriage. He makes a great point. I alluded to it last week. He says, quote, oh, and I found this out, by the way. I'm not saying I've read every commentary. I read about eight on this. He writes, almost all commentators seem to make the assumption that porneia refers to adultery. I told you that a few weeks ago, that uh, last week I told you that when most people read verse 9, here's what they hear. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. But that's not what Jesus said. So we've got to ask ourselves. And right now, some of you may be saying, Jeff, okay, you're right, technical. Man, it's getting a little on my nerves here. My brain's starting to get a little bit, okay, we're just starting on it, so hang tough. It's going to be a little bit more. But maybe right about now you're thinking, okay, pornea, machea. Um, fornication, sexual immorality, adultery, what does it matter? Not a big deal. Words matter. Can I, let me illustrate. Is it a criminal offense to kill someone? Uh, trick question why there's first degree murder that's criminal offense manslaughter is a lower level but a criminal offense but if someone's driving a car and they hydroplane doing the best they can or a tire blows out and they frankly just correct the wrong way and they go into a tree and a passenger dies that's not a criminal offense if a soldier pulls a trigger or puts in some coordinates that a, that a supreme officer gave them an order to do, that is not a criminal offense. That's called war. If a surgeon does a surgery and they know going in, there's a 15% chance we'll lose them, 85% chance, 85% of the people. But 15 out of 100, they lost. Granted, they wouldn't have died that day if they hadn't have done the surgery. But they died that day. They would have died three weeks later, but they died that day. He did the best he can. Technically, yes, his action of going in there caused the death that time. That is not a criminal offense. He did the absolute best he could. And so if someone's sitting here, you know what? Adultery, fornication. Adultery, sexual immorality, it really doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. No, it's not. Go back. Here comes our third clue. Go back to Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. Clue number one. Why only Matthew? Clue number two, why is he using this word porneia as the exception clause? Matthew chapter 15. I invite you to keep hanging with me. I know this is a different message than, than typical on a Sunday morning. But really it needs to be talked about. 
Matthew 15. Look at verse number 19. So it's this big debate. How come your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat? Don't you worry about my disciples. They're fine. No, they've defiled themselves. And he tells them, no, it's not like unclean hands that haven't been washed exactly the way you Pharisees think they have to be washed. That doesn't mean when they touch food and it goes in the mouth, they're now defiled and unclean inside. What he's trying to show them is what comes out of the heart. And typically it's your words that will defile you because they show a defiled heart. Verse number 19, watch it. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Seven sins are named. Look at it again. Out of the heart, that's where the real Defilement comes out of the heart. Come evil thoughts, murder. Here's our two words. Adultery, that word that starts with M that I can't pronounce. Sexual immorality, porneia, theft, false witness, slander. That's what defiles a person. If someone were to give a list of colors and they were to say black, white, yellow, purple, orange, navy, green, name a couple more, royal, give a couple more, you'd say, no, you don't need to say royal and navy, just say blue. Is royal and navy the same thing? No, they're different. The person has a different thing in mind. Piper writes the following. He says, then I noticed something very interesting. The only other place besides Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 where Matthew even uses this word porneia is in Matthew 15 verse 19 where he uses it directly alongside the word mokeia. Therefore, he says the primary contextual evidence of Matthew's usage is that he conceives in his mind of porneia as being something different than adultery. Can we agree on that? You don't put two things side by side if you mean them to be the same. I just need some filler. I don't want a list of six sins. I want a list of seven. So I'm going to say the same thing twice and just use two different words. No, these are two different ideas. We have to agree with this. This is two separate words that Jesus used here, two separate words that Jesus used in the other Two passages. And so since it means something different, here's all I'm going to ask you right now. You ready? Well, then what does porneia mean? Piper's going to offer, quote, Could this mean then that in Matthew's record of Jesus' teaching, he is thinking of porneia in its more usual sense of fornication or incest, talking about Typical brother, sister there. Or prostitution that does not denote marital unfaithfulness. Could it be he's talking about something that is not marital unfaithfulness? Well, then what in the world is it talking about? Because it's an exception clause to divorce. It has to be something to do with marital unfaithfulness. He's offering what if it's not? Next clue, John chapter 8. Would you flip over there? John chapter 8, very quickly, we're not going to spend a long time here. John chapter 8, verse 41. There's another run-in with the Pharisees, and Jesus is saying, he's accusing them of not being the spiritual children of Abraham, though they are the physical children of Abraham. They're defending themselves as we certainly are the children of Abraham. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's spiritual children, what's, what, that's not in the text, but that's implied. If you really were Abraham's spiritual children, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. All I'm doing is telling you the truth. And you guys, if you had your way, you'd kill me right now. They'll kill him in a few chapters. But not this time. And so 
They're getting in this debate, and Jesus says, you do the works. Look at verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. And a few verses later, he's going to tell them who their father is. Your father is the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. You're just like him, and that's why you act the way you do. If you were really Abraham's children, you'd be glad to see me. If Abraham were here today, he would receive me and put his faith in me. But you do not. Verse 41 again. You are doing the works your father did. Watch what they said to him. Here we go. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Can I paraphrase slightly? Well, at least we weren't born of sexual immorality. We know what's going on. Yeah, you guys go around saying that you were virgin born. Yeah, right. We've done some checking back in Nazareth. Your mother was engaged, betrothed to this man named Joseph, but she jumped the gun and she was unfaithful and you were born out of it wedlock, weren't you? At least we weren't born out of sexual immorality like you. Piper writes, the next clue in my search for an explanation came when I noticed the use of pornea in John 8, 41, where Jewish leaders indirectly accused Jesus of being born of pornea. In other words, since they don't accept the virgin birth, they assume that his mother Mary had committed fornication and that Jesus was the result of this act. And so Piper's like, okay, wait a minute. Why only Matthew? Why does he use this word? Okay, maybe it's the same word. Don't oh, wait a minute. No, it's in a list side by side. It has to be something different. Then is that pointing to something other than marital unfaithfulness? Wait a minute. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of fornication. Act of sin before the marriage took place. If you would join me back, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. I know this is a Christmas text. But it's our fifth clue. And we've said all this, and in a moment we're going to make the culminating thought and then try to defend it one more time. Matthew 1, look at verse 18. We preached on this back in January. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's how it happened, Matthew says. When his mother, Mary, had been, what's the next word? betrothed so here's how the birth of Jesus took place when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph very important here before they came together means physically she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit so she goes she knows what's happened she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth comes back apparently a little while later and she's showing and Joseph's going to see this and Joseph's going to hit the roof because Joseph knows he didn't do that. And he has no clue. There's nothing in his head that says, you know what? I bet you're the virgin talked about in Isaiah, aren't you, honey? <laughs> Never crosses his mind. That is not on his radar. All he knows is, I didn't do this. We were pledged. We're betrothed. We're legally pledged to each other. We're legally bound. We're in this betrothal period. We're in a one-year waiting period to prove that you're pure. And what happens? You come back from your relative. You've not been pure. No, honey, I promise I've been. I don't want to hear it. No, the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit, don't tell me that. Now you're blaspheming. Stop it. Verse 19. And her. What's the next word? Let me try it again. Look at verse 19. And her husband. What? Joseph. Being a, next word, just man. And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to, next word, divorce her quietly. 
It's her husband. They're betrothed. He's just. That's what's driving this decision. He's resolved. I'm going to have to divorce her. But I'm going to do it quietly because he loves her. doesn't want to shame her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And of course, Joseph wakes from the dream and does exactly that. Piper offers the following. He says, Joseph and Mary are referred to as husband and wife. Yet they are described as only being betrothed to each other at that time. What's going on there? Piper correctly says betrothal was a more significant commitment at that time than engagement is today. This is not on a Friday night in a real romantic way and you slide a ring on and you ask and she says yes. And then a little while later, we need to call it off. Can I have my ring back? Sorry we wasted money on invitations and flowers. We'll get back a percentage. This is not that. This is betrothal. Again, legally pledged. Piper continues, Joseph resolves to divorce Mary. Again, though they're only betrothed. Why? It would take a divorce to get out of this. Not like, well, we're going to call it up, right? We agree, okay. This is not it. This is not America. This is in the Jewish culture. And in skipping ahead, Piper says, most important of all, Matthew says that Joseph was just in making the decision to divorce Mary presumably on account of her assumed porneia, fornication. In other words, this divorce was permitted according to Matthew. A little later, Piper writes the following. That means that Matthew, as a follower of Jesus, would not consider this kind of divorce wrong. It would not have prevented Joseph from marrying another. You say, what kind of divorce? In the betrothal period. Later, he writes the following. Since only, now he's trying to, oh, he's offering. This answers the questions. Since only Matthew had told this story and raised this question, you'll not find this version of the story in Luke or John. John talks about the eternal word. Luke talks about this perfect man, and he gives many other things, and the shepherds and the angels and all of that, and the decree of of Caesar Augustus. Only Matthew gives this dilemma that Joseph finds himself in, back to Piper's quote. He says, since only Matthew had told this story and raised this question, he was the only gospel writer who would feel any need to make clear that Jesus' absolute prohibition of divorce followed by remarriage did not include a situation like Joseph and Mary's. Jumping ahead one more time. He records, talking about Matthew, he records Jesus saying, as if he's saying this, whoever divorces his wife... Not including, of course, the case of fornication between betrothed couples. And marries another, commits adultery. Again, here's this culmination. And you're probably thinking, this definitely sounds different than the other two bullet points from last week. He's offering the following. He's recording that apparently what Matthew is doing is saying that Jesus is saying, quote, whoever divorces his wife, not including, of course, the case of fornication between betrothed couples, that's why he uses the different word. And marries another, commits adultery. This would explain why, Matt, or why Mark and Luke don't put it in their book because they don't include this whole dilemma that Joseph and Mary find themselves. And so a little bit of a culminating thought. This is a fact. Betrothals were so binding that they would require divorce to break. And if that's the case, 
Here it comes, sports fans. And we Americans do not like this, but Jesus seems to be teaching that once vows are made, right, betrothal, once vows are made, now this is the public, final vows, and a marriage is consummated physically, it's permanent. It's permanent. Yeah, but now what if they may, you stay? Jeff, please tell me that's not what you think. If I were to go any other direction, I would go with, with last week's second point. I lean toward this one for these reasons. And maybe right now you're saying, hold on, Jeff, you said six clues. You gave us five. Why only Matthew? Why does he use this word? Obviously, the words are different because we see them side by side in Matthew 15. And we do see, yes, that the Pharisees were badgering Jesus with claims that he was a bastard. You understand that? And yes, Matthew 1 does call them husband and wife and betrothed, and it's going to take a divorce but I'm still just not settled. Go back one more passage, back to Matthew 19. Go back there one more time. You there? Here we go. It occurred to me a few years ago, modern scholars, and this is what I've been doing. You said, Jeff, you alluded to reading seven or eight guys. Modern scholars debate word meanings. Word usage. Here's what I know. The 12 men who were there, who spoke the language, who saw the interaction between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees, who heard Jesus' voice inflection, they know fully what's going on. Here's all I know. Look at their reaction, verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Lord, Piper, in other words, this is my words, Lord, if marriage is as permanent as you've just made it sound, then it's better to not get married. Please tell me that's not what you meant. Piper says, he writes, this response would not make as much sense if Jesus has just prescribed a back door to marriage as large as infidelity. What does that mean? Why are you guys getting all worked up? I'm just agreeing with Rabbi Shammai. No, you're not. Obviously, you don't agree with Hillel that for any old reason, none of us believe that. That's ridiculous. We know it has something to do with this sexual immorality. Surely you fall that adultery or maybe repeated and on and on adultery. That's the reason. But their attitude is, you've gone something way stricter than what Rabbi Shammai has offered. Do you know equally striking to their, listen, there's their response. Lord, did you see what Jesus did not do? What? Is that how you guys took that? Do you think they? John, you're young and fast. Go get those boys and bring them back. Hey, fellas, I'm really sorry. Apparently, I made it sound like infidelity is not a backdoor to marriage. I am really sorry. I kind of line up with your stricter guy. Oh, good. Thanks for clarifying that. What does he do? Yeah, guys, some folks are single. Well, that's not what we want to hear. We don't want to hear that. Tell us we misunderstood. Mm -mm. Some people are single. 
This stuck out to me this week. I'm going to get technical just a couple more times this morning. Look at verse 11. Such the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Look at verse 11. Look at it. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. Only those to whom it's given. Look at the end of verse 12. The end of verse 12. Hey, not everybody can receive this saying. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. Do you know how some people actually hear that? Lord, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to get married. Do you know how some people actually hear After all that, here's what they hear. Oh, well, listen, if all that I just taught about divorce and remarriage isn't for you, then I understand. It's not for everybody. That's not what he's saying. So what is verse 11? He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. You know what he's saying? What you guys just said is not an option for everybody. Not everybody has the gift of singleness. Now, some are born that way, some are made that way, and some can take a vow. Singleness is a great option. He sounds a lot like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness is a great option if you can do it, but if you can't and you get married, then stay in it. Live godly. Husbands, live godly. Be faithful. Wives, live godly. Be faithful. Stay in it. Right about now, Grace View's thinking, man, I'll be glad when this one's over. I don't like this message. One, it's confusing. I don't know if I'm where the second point last week. This sounds like it's got some beef to it this week. I don't. Can I offer you this? In a minute, I'm going to finish with one final little flurry, but here's kind of a culminating thought. Please catch it. The New Testament only allows for marriage to be broken by death, by an unbeliever departing, and at most, I believe, unrelenting, unrepentant sexual sin. But I think what it's really talking about is in that Jewish culture, before they'd consummated the marriage physically, if in that waiting period, she or even he is found, then Jesus is like, well, yeah, you get out of that. It's going to take a divorce. Do your paperwork. But once you're in it, you're in it. And I know how we think. Jeff, come on, man. 21-year-olds make these decisions. God does not expect 21-year-olds to hold to these things. Jeff, things change. Jeff, people change. Hey, young people, if you are not married, if you have not yet been married and you're thinking about it and God has not given you the gift of singleness, then you pursue marriage. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to make you a promise. You will change. You get married at 21, you at 49 will be very different than you were at 21. And all God's married people said... Amen. I have changed. I'm not the guy. There's, you know, in physical ways, are you kidding me? What is happening here? Uh, there's lots of that. Uh, bless her heart. She's had to be married to me. And in, unfortunately, some other ways, you're going to change. And things change. Do you really think God expects it? That's why when I talk to young people or middle-aged person, whatever it may be, you're seriously thinking about getting married, you better do it soberly. You better do it advisedly. But maybe the main thing, solemnly, more than anything else, you better do it prayerfully. Why? He knows how you will change. He knows how they will change. He knows everything that's going to happen to you from now until the time you die. And so if you can't live up to the following, then don't do it. Car wrecks happen. You know car wrecks change people's lives. If you only married him because he looks like a runway model and he goes through a windshield of a vehicle, well, he doesn't look like what I married. I'm out. Then you weren't in it. Cancer happens. 
and it can get really ugly. Strokes happen. Lost jobs happen. Alzheimer's. I am not trying to... Man, this, man, this guy makes marriage sound like the pits. <laughs> it's, marriage is a great gift of God. It's pleasure, fulfillment, support, opportunities to minister that single people will never have. But what I'm telling you is when you go in this and you stand and say, till death do us part, then what you're saying, hey, the biggest on my list, death of a child. Do you know what happened? I know it's so unnatural, but they tell me that nothing is more stressful in a marriage than the death of their child. Financial loss, you stay in it. Hey, financial gain, people change when they, I always tell young people, one of you may be sitting on the $10 million idea, and they may change, but I hope you don't. I hope the one who ate ramen noodles is the same person who has a $1.4 million house. Same person. Be faithful. Once you're in it. So here's, here's my challenge. Married people, once you're in it, then be in it. Be faithful. If you're even thinking about getting married, you better do it prayerfully. Lord, is this your will? And you better, you better be praying too. If I'm not the one for you, then let God, Lord, you break it apart. And if he doesn't break it apart and he leads you and it's very clear we're supposed to be together, then you be together. And so here's my final little runway. I'm going to need just a moment, a few moments to do this one. So here's one to close. All right, Jeff. What about the wrongly divorced and remarried person? Let's finish there. What about the wrongly divorced and remarrying? So whether you hold to the second bullet point last week or to the first one or to today's, do you know what is in my mind? Do you know most people are, here's their honest heart's answer. Jeff, I'm divorced. Nobody ever told me any of this stuff. And here you sit. Again, I do not stand in a place of judgment, so here's what I would offer. What should this person do? Listen, I'm going to tell you what to do. You do the same thing you would do with any other area of sin. What's that? Confess it. You get together with your spouse and say, you know what? Apparently, any of those views, our marriage was not started in a godly fashion. You confess your sin to the Lord, and this is key. Receive his forgiveness. Can we insert the gospel right here? First John 1, 7, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This ain't the big one, but this is the big one. Do we have to walk around with a big D on ourselves? Stop it. If somebody lies... Confess your sins, repent of it, receive the forgiveness of the Lord. If someone looks at pornography, then confess it as sin, receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Claim 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9. Go to Romans chapter 6 and learn about your victory through Christ. And then stop doing that. And don't walk around with your head way down low like you're a second-class Christian. If you've been wrongly divorced and remarried, then don't you walk around like a second-class Christian and nobody here better ever treat them like a second-class Christian because they're not because we're all sinners. We're all in need of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what you beg for. And when he gives it, you believe him. I've received it. You may condemn me, but he doesn't. And so you go on and serve the Lord where you're at right now moving forward. That's what you do. That's what you do. But Jeff, what about our marriage? What should we do about that? 
You're already remarried, right? Here's what I tell you. Stay in it. Do, do you think we need to go back in it? No, Deuteronomy 24 is pretty clear on that. You don't divorce a second marriage to go back and try to make things right with a first marriage. Not an option. Please hear this. I'm going to get technical like one more time. One more time. Some of our young people need to hear this because this is an epidemic in our country. Piper offers one more time. Here we go. Stay faithful right where you're at. Listen, please, listen. He says, Jesus seemed to regard multiple marriages as wrong but real. This is brilliant. What? Yes. Jesus seemed to regard multiple marriages as wrong but real. They're real marriages. He says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 18, you've had five, listen, husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. Did you catch it? You've had five husbands. Five husbands, real marriages. And the one you now have is not your husband. He continues, She's living with a man now, but there's been no marriage, no covenant making. The others Jesus calls husbands, but the one she's with now is not her husband. Jeff, what does that mean? A lot of people are doing this in our country right now, living together. Apparently somewhere in the past, and I don't know what states do this, and I, don't, I didn't study it out. All I know is there's this phraseology you live together long enough, we call it common law marriage, not in the Bible. That is not a marriage. There's been no covenant making. Now over here, he's telling this woman, you've been wrongly married five times, but you've been married five times. This over here, that's not a marriage. That's shacking up and living together. And that's what's happening in our country right now. Had a couple. I knew them well. Wanted me to do premarital, and I think I was supposed to do their wedding. Met with them, got a bunch of information, gave them a thing that I always give everybody, and they took it home and supposed to read it and sign it at the bottom, and they brought it back. I about forgot. Went through my whole second time with them. I said, oh, by the way, did you guys bring that thing back? One of the things that's on there is we will abstain from sexual activity and blah, 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 and we're going to seek to make this a God-honoring ceremony and be mindful and all these wonderful things. And when they brought that, they said, yeah, we, we can't really sign that. And I'm like, why is that? Well... We didn't tell you last time, but we're living together. But we're committed. I'm like, oh. Well, you have to stop doing that. If you want me to be any part of this, well, we really believe firmly that, that we're, we're very committed. And, and the only thing that hadn't happened is we're, we believe we're already married in God's eyes. We just haven't had the ceremony yet. Well, then, then go do it right now or stop living together. And there was folks, there was another older group person that if I said who it was you'd probably know who it was and they met with me and they'd lived together for a long long time and I said here's what needs to happen but they were like but for financial reasons I'm like well it looks horrible but we're not actually I said well it looks like it. here's what needs to happen. you two either need to stop living together or you need to get married do one or the other because that's not marriage sorry for that little rant <laughs> Jeff what do we do two last quotes he writes Piper says even though the current covenant is adulterous in the making it's real and should be kept. Its beginning in sin does not have to mean that it is continuously sinful. In other words, no more broken covenants. Stay in this one. Dedicate it to the Lord. And then the last thought is, Piper says, there are illustrations of God taking acts of disobedience and turning the result 
into Jeff, that's got to be the wrong wording. No. It's not the wrong wording. Hear it. There are illustrations of God taking acts of disobedience and turning the results into God-ordained plans. Jeff, what in the world? That can't be. I can't explain it. All I know is it's in the Bible. There were these Hebrew midwives who lied. And God saved Moses' life. There's this woman named Rahab straight up lied to her own townspeople in Jericho. And God used her lie. Now, it was a lie, but God used it to save the the two men that were sent to spy on the city of Jericho. The worst sin of all time has to be the killing of God's son. It's the greatest act of disobedience in the history of the world. It was God-ordained. We don't get to go to heaven if Christ doesn't die on a cross. I can't explain it. Here's all I'm going to say. If you're in a relationship now and you've come out of a divorce and a remarriage situation, you're in it now, here's what you do. You pray, you confess it, you receive the forgiveness of the Lord if you haven't done that yet. And you say, you know what? Let's let God redeem ours and let's make it the most glorious thing, the most God-honoring relationship ever. And we're going to serve the Lord till death does us part. Father, I thank you for these folks. Lord, I'm glad this little series is over. I really am, Lord. And so we commit it to you. Thank you for those that were help to me. And Lord, where we've been wrong on something, would your Holy Spirit give clarity Lord, let us be a people that honor you. Lord, most of all, it's just about you. It's not even about us, as we sang earlier, coming and asking for more blessings. You're what matters. And so, Lord, Luke 16 and Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 and Mark 10, they seem like hard sayings. But, Lord, let us, Lord, I'm going to pray. Let your people stop thinking about what's allowed And let's start thinking about what you want and what honors you and what pleases you. And Lord, just fill our marriages with love so that unfaithfulness never is an issue and hatred and anger is never an issue. And Lord, I pray that as we change, that we'll just change together and grow closer to Christ and that you'll draw each of us closer to each other. Lord, put your favor on our marriages. God, be with our Sunday schools in the next five weeks as our men study together and our women study together. Lord, let this little flock right here please you, make you happy. God, would you honor the preaching of your word for Jesus' sake. Amen.